0: Everybody. welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host Dave Stovall, and we've got a great episode in store for you today. On today's episode, we've got Melanie Hester. She's the Communications Engagement Manager for Awana. This clip was taken from a track session that we had at our National Disciple Making Forum last year. This is actually part two of Awana's track sessions at the event. Melanie talked to us about the importance of handing down our faith to our children, to our nieces and nephews, to the younger generations growing up in our churches. She does a good job pinpointing what we've been doing for the last several years and connecting that with the poor results that we're seeing today with younger generations leaving the faith. Whether you have kids or not, this episode will be helpful for you to see the importance of discipling younger generations and learning a new way forward in handing down the faith. All right, let's jump in and hear from Melanie Hester.
1: My name is Melanie Hester, and I am with Iwana. I am the communications engagement manager there. I have been for the last two years, and um, it's kind of a dream of mine that God made a reality by being able to work in further on just the mission of child discipleship and what it looks like for the children of today to be influenced and come to know Jesus in a way that lets them be you in the Church of 2050. So thank you for being here with us today. Um, What we're going to be walking through today is this concept of handing down the faith. And if all of us are real, we'd raise our hands and be like, well, yes, I, I want that to happen. And if we continue to be honest with ourselves, we would also then raise our other hand and say, not confident on how we do that well, right? And you're not alone. I'm there with you as I've got two and one on the way. You're all there as you look at that in your churches and in your own families. We are also having this really complex place where we realize that discipleship today looks very different than it has in a very long time. And that can often let us feel like Dory swimming around trying to figure out where we're at, except we don't have a memory impairment. We thought we knew where we were at, and it just feels so unfamiliar to us, right? So a couple of things we're gonna be doing is, I um, recently had the privilege of reading the book Handing Down the Faith um, by Christian Smith and Amy Adamchek. If that's a book that you haven't read yet, I would highly suggest you do that, with the caveat that this book is so stat-driven and heavy It's taking me a long time to get through it. Now, I'm not like your, I'm not a super intellectual reader. I'm also not a super basic reader. I'd say I'm pretty average. So take that for yourself. Um, I do not have like the cliff notes of this book. So maybe have somebody you know read it and they can give you the cliff notes. But what I will say, um, I have just, pulled so many good things out of this book because they, they basically take this study of American parents, and this is American parents, whether they are immigrants, they have emigrated from their land and they are now living here, or whether they are natural-born citizens, and it's across all faiths. And so we're going to be covering today to kind of introduce ourselves to this topic of what has it looked like for other faiths to hand down their faith. And then how do we then contextualize that into our conversation today as a Christian faith? Knowing that we're not the other faiths who are living in a world in which they hope that they'll have eternity. We are living in the resurrected savior, right? So you guys can see up on the screen we're going to walk briefly through what it was to look like for Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Latino Catholics and even um, different Protestants to pass down their faith. And then we'll end with the question of how do we raise resilient disciples in a post-Christian culture? So to get us started, I just want to introduce this concept of what, like this, the cultural model of passing down the faith from generation to generation. And you're going to probably start to see some similarities of, of potentially culture that you've engaged with. This is broader than just the church. This is culture in general, all right? So the definition of an intergenerational religious transmission is that parents are responsible for preparing their children for the challenging journey of life during which they will hopefully become their very best possible self and live a happy and good life. Religion, in that context, then provides crucial help for them to navigate the journey of life successfully, including giving them moral guidance, emotional support, and a secure home base. So pause there for a second. Lots of words I told you. It's a really high-level read, right? So up to that point, parents are saying the intergenerational model of passing down the faith is to give us the outcome that our kids are living a really good, happy life and that they're living their best selves. Anybody heard that in culture lately? Yeah? You be you. You know, like, even even in the Christian world, God made you to be exactly who you are. Yes. But also, in the midst of that, God's made you to be more like Him. And those two things can often stand in contrast to one another, right? So let's continue on. So parents should then equip their children with the knowledge of their religion by doing the following. Modeling its practices, its values, and its ethics which then children will, and I love this word placed here, hopefully, (laughs) absorb and embrace it for themselves. So culturally in the United States right now, if there is any parent who's wanting to pass down their faith, this is what they're hoping they're doing when they say they're going to pass down their faith. They hope they give their kids a really good, happy life. They hope it gives them what they need to navigate all that life will throw at them. And they hope... That by simply modeling their religion, the kids will then just absorb it and then pass it down to the next generation. Now, as ludicrous as this sounds, is it not familiar? Is this not a pattern that we actually see in the families and in the communities around us? Not everyone. We're not saying that everyone fits in this category. But culturally, I would actually agree with this. This is something that I see in our culture here in the United States. And so, again, to break that down, they just want to be able to give them. We want them to have a knowledge of the purpose of life, okay? So as Christians, do we want our kids to have a knowledge of the purpose of life? Yes, we do. Um, How does that differ? Oh, man. (laughs) So much. Not in the UBU, you just determine life in your own self happy way, but in like what purpose has God given us in this life and what does he have for us as disciples? We could go down the list. They want to give all of these things and they are hoping that helping them understand children and religious truth and the value of religion is simply going to be passed down through modeling. All right? And this is a, we'll continue on, that's an interesting perspective there. They then continue to go on and say that in culture, parents really only have one good way to raise children to carry on their family's faith. It's just to practice it themselves and then model it for their children, and they will absorb it over time. They actually go as far as to believe that parents shouldn't ever preach to their kids and they shouldn't be verbally overbearing at all. You should just explain it to them, recognizing that hypocrisy is the absolute worst, which we would all agree. We don't want hypocrites saying that faith looks like this and then living a life that looks differently. Um, And that to do this, you just must walk the talk. Just show it and they'll live it. And then finally, they say that parents, um, when they're young, they can enforce that their children say, yes, you have to go to church. But then as they move into that like adolescence, no, not as much, you let them decide. And if they choose to say no, you say, okay, well, hopefully me going to church is going to push you to want to go to church too. I don't know about you, I don't have teenagers yet. Do these people have children? My oldest is eight. <laughs> this, is my, this is my question. Have you gotten your teenagers to do something by just modeling it for them? Hey, y'all, I'm going to eat some broccoli. How's that settling with you? My eight-year-old would be like, yeah, no thanks, Mom. My four-year-old would throw it on the floor, right? So imagine teenagers who are just going to push their plate away and say, I'm not going to do that. And so what's interesting is our cultural model weighs heavily on this concept of passing down our faith through simply modeling. There's no verbal affirmation or instruction or direction. And and what we're seeing in the world is is it's not creating a lasting faith simply by walking the talk. Now, what I will continue to say on during our time together is that it does not mean that walking the talk isn't a way that we do it. It is, and I want to say that loud and clear, but it cannot be the only way, and we'll walk through that um, later on down the road. And so just think think right exactly where you're at. If this is where our culture is at, are you seeing this, one, and the culture around you? Are you seeing this permeate even the families in your church? I wonder if you sit here with me today And you were to think, even though that they're believers and they come to church on a semi-regular basis, I say regular, but let's remember, like, regular church attendance is 1.4 times a month, so I'm not really sure how regular we can define that as. But that family, do you see that description of, like, faith intergeneral transmission depicted in the, the way that they're passing it down to their kids. Honestly, I do. I see it in my church. I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm one of six kids and I see it in my own family. It's none of us are void from, from experiencing this cultural transmission. And so we're going to go into this point where we're actually going to, to wonder for a second of how could we have gotten to this point of where we're at today, right? And um, if you guys aren't familiar with Barna's research, which would shock me because Barna is doing absolutely incredible things in the research world. Um, So if you're unfamiliar with them, write that down right now. That should be a takeaway from this um, time together. Go check out Barna and the incredible studies that they've done to help us understand where we're at and what faith looks like in today's generation. But they've identified that where we're at today when you take Gen Z, all right, everybody's talking about Gen Z. Can I, can I hear an amen that we're not talking about millennials anymore? Right? Even my dad was saying just the other day, he was like, ah oh, man, those millennials. And I was like, Dad, millennials are in their 40s. Like, it's not – I'm a millennial, and I have three children. Like, we have our thing. But it's now moved on to the next generation where we're talking about Gen Z, right? And Gen Z, this is, again – a broad statistic across all of Gen Z, not specific to one faith, but Gen Z would declare that 34% 34 of them, their religious affiliation is either atheist, agnostic, or none. That's a staggering number. That 34% of them declare, I don't believe in God. There is no God. And they're completely rejecting any sort of faith in any capacity. And then on the flip side of that, only 4% of all Gen Z would identify that they have some sort of a biblical worldview. Now, this was not even specific to a worldview centered on these parts of scriptures. It was just a biblical worldview. So who knows how they define that, right? So only 4% of Gen Z is saying, I have a biblical worldview, declaring a relationship of some sort with Jesus. So that's the world we're living in today, all right? And while millennials are the ones that are having kids, Gen Z are the leaders that are coming up, that are getting married, who will then most likely have kids. And so for those of us who are in our churches, we're either seeing Gen Z in our youth groups and in our college ministries, and our young adult ministries, Or we're going to start seeing their children in our children's ministries. And we have to realize that only 4% of them have a world, biblical worldview. So how effective is our current model of handing down the faith to the next generation? Right? I would say not to be hopeless because it's more effective than we think because of the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? It doesn't depend on us to pass on our faith. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. However, there are structures that we can put into place to help us, to help us be able to support the Holy Spirit in a way that God has designed us to do. All right, so this book then goes on to go through four kids. There are three major influencers in the life of a child that impact their faith. It's parents, It's the church and its intergenerational influence. All right, there's that word again. So we're going to stick to parents first. And um, parents, they they found in their studies that parents are finding these young adults to have far more cultural buy-in to topics than any young adults ever have before. And I find that to be true as well. We have young adults up and coming that we're seeing are young entrepreneurs creating businesses to save. Honestly, uh, I saw one on Shark Tank just the other week. This young 13 year old created a business to save the, like, the marine life in the beach that's close to his house, right? Like we're seeing kids at a much younger age engage in really adult topics. They also found that they've bought into adult values and goals at a much younger age than ever before. They're beginning to have conversation about race and gender identity and equality and all the things that perhaps we should have been talking about a long time ago. They're saying, we'll step in and have this conversation that couldn't have been had before. So they're finding that parents are saying, we see all of this. They also found, can we just look at this last one? The vast majority of teenagers get along with their parents. That does not mean that there's never fights, but the vast majority of teenagers do not hate their parents. And I think most of us sitting in this room would say that while teenagers are both the highest joy and the lowest low of your life, There are moments where you see God work in beautiful ways in your relationship. And that's what all parents of all faith identified, that these teenagers respect them more than culture tends to put them at, um, as respecting. So when it comes to parents, they also talk about the influence that parents have is that parents talk the most influential is the religion. If you talk about your religion, it gets passed on. Now pause for a second because what parents just identified was that the way that they hand down their faith is through modeling. And yet studies found that the best one of the best ways for parents to hand down their faith is through talking. And when you see the word language up there, they're not talking about the the ethnic language that they used, that they were born into, into their home. They're talking about, is our family talking about our faith And if not, what are we talking about? Because that tends to be the first language of the home. And they found that the first language of the home tends to be more about American culture, which includes individualism and capitalism, not our faith. And so we begin to see the dots connect here, right? Modeling is important. However, talking about our faith is one of the most influential ways we can pass this down to our kids. They declared that when parents regularly talk with their children about religious matters in completely ordinary settings, let's define that, in the car, in the drive-thru getting McDonald's, going home from church, tucking them into bed and getting water for the 50th time, (laughs) right? It is in those ordinary moments that it gives kids what they need to make their first language hopefully, one that is a biblical worldview. So this is where we begin to see the modeling and the talking come center stage, hand in hand. This is a marriage, not one being higher than the other. This is the two of them together help to shape the faith that our kids are taking. And so the biggest takeaway was we are going to talk about what we care about. Now, I'm not saying that those who don't create uh, that—that don't create biblical worldview to be the first language in their home don't care about Jesus. They could be godly, influential people in the church that love Jesus. But if they're not talking about it, then it does show that there's something they care about more that they're wanting to communicate. And so that's kind of the point that we're coming to today is that it is both the model of modeling and showing our kids what it looks like for us to exist in a good, healthy relationship with Jesus, being disciples of him and following after him, and also what we talk about. And I'm going to go there for a second. That's like in terms of politics. That's in terms of how the church is handling any given problem on any given day. That's in everything how are they hearing us talk because they hear far more than we admit i think deep down we know that they're hearing it and we just hope that the cd we put on in the back of the car is loud enough to mute the conversation that we're having in the driver's seat right so we're going to go relatively quickly um, through this to make sure that we can get through everything Um, But as you go through the different faith spectrums, we're going to, we are going to find that most American parents weren't actually concerned about major religious losses in their kids. This was fascinating to me. When you ask them, do you think your children will lose their faith? Most of them were like, yeah, I'm not really concerned about that. Really? Really? Okay. Interesting. Okay. This is, again, it's across all major faiths, but fascinating. And when they describe that, they said they either think confidently, my children will never lose their faith, okay? Or they just say, I just don't really know what's going to happen. And it goes back to that definition. Remember that hopefully the modeling will then just absorb into their lives. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that hoping that faith gets transmission to the next generation isn't enough. It's not enough. We, in fact, we can actually do more than hope. We can't control. We can't guarantee. But goodness, we can do more than just hope that our faith gets passed on to the next generation. There was only 14% of all parents in this study that actually feared or worried that their children would lose their faith. I don't want to, we talk a lot about how if your children Exist in today's culture, which they do, they're being discipled by something. What is it? Something's discipling them. It, it may not even necessarily be TikTok or social media. Like you may put really good boundaries in that, in that level. It, I don't know what that looks like for your family, but they're being discipled by something. And I think the question we have to really ask ourselves is are they being discipled? through Scripture, are they truly, through all moments of our week, being discipled with a biblical worldview? Because what we also know, thanks to Barna, is that that by the age of 12 and 13, y'all, their biblical worldview is set. Let me say that again, 12 and 13, their biblical worldview is set. So if we think that we can wait until they're teenagers to begin talking about these hard conversations around Scripture— we're missing the boat. Because by the time they're 13, they've already had a really established way of which they view the world. And this is why Iwana exists, because we're trying to wake up alongside the church to say, what are we doing from zero to 12? Because if that's where biblical worldview is defined and cemented in a child, then goodness gracious, we have to do more than just tell the story of Noah over and over and over again we have to help them flourish. Because as one of my very favorite professors says, she says, when children come to experience Jesus, they don't get a junior Holy Spirit. They get the same Holy Spirit that's invested in every single one of us. And that is through the power of the Holy Spirit that that faith is passed down through us as parents and through as guardians and aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas investing in them, showing them what our faith looks like and helping that to pass on to the next generation.
0: Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got e-books, and even disciple-making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website. It's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org/collective and sign up for your free membership today.
1: So, we've come to this thing. This should be a really simple one cuz I've totally set you up for this, all right? So, which statement resonates more with you? That children should be encouraged to decide their religious views on their own, or parents should encourage children to just accept their faith. You can put a one up if you think it's number one. Put a two up if you think it's number two. You can do a one and a two if you think it's both. All right? I am not just raising the roof here. I know I like that's a different generation. It's both. We should be allowing our children to both decide their religious views on their own and understand and ask hard questions while also being shaped that your faith has been passed down to you from generation to generation. My son is eight and he's gonna get to be baptized on Sunday and this has been a long thing and we are so excited for him. But one of the things that our church specifically speaks over children, is this, this incredible um, just nature that they say, child, you have been born into a family of faith. Don't underestimate that. And the first time I heard that, it kind of took me back. And I was like, I mean, that's true. And as I began to continue to unpack that, Like having a child that's been born into a family of faith gives them a front row seat to transformational disciple from the very moment of their birth. What a powerful gift the Holy Spirit can use that in their life. So we're going to go through super fast because the biggest piece of each of these models of different faiths will come um, up really quickly. So we first went through Muslim Parents. And Muslim parents are very specific to, they do a lot of in-home modeling. Every Sunday, they go to their mosque. They spend all day there. And in parents and kids together, they cooperatively engage in religious activities and opportunities to enrich their faith. In fact, there's a quote in the book where there's a Muslim dad who's being asked, like, why do you go to the mosque on Sundays with your kids? And he said, well, what kind of example would it be if I dropped my kids off all day and I went to the mall? And I kind of like when I heard that I was like, "Oh my gosh, that that's great!" And yet, then I kind of reflected on my own experience of like, how many times do I drop my kids off at church? I'm like, "Whoo, I got a two-hour break here. That's okay." But what a powerful opportunity to say, "What could I be doing with my kids during that time that helps to spiritually development?" That was my biggest takeaway from watching, like, from reading this from Muslim parents is. They together, parents and kids, are experiencing their faith transformation together, and I thought that was a really powerful model. So second, Hindu parents focus primarily on like modeling their faith in their home. In fact, when you pull them aside and take them to the temple, the temple really is more set for cultural connections and opportunities to kind of remember their identity and who they are, but the, all, most of their faith practice happens within their home. In fact, they have entire rooms of their home set aside to worship the various deities that they have. And this caused me to stop and think for a second and say, is there any area of my home that I have literally set aside to worship Jesus? What could that look like? Now, some of us might reflect back on our own growing up years where we said my dad or my mom was always seated at the table with a cup of coffee and their Bible open. I will say that that is a space where they that, that, that was consecrated for the Word of God. But, but honestly, in my life, I don't have that like spot in my home where my kids know that this is where mom grew her faith. I, so I wondered, what would that look like for us in the church to encourage families to have a spot in their home where either individually as parents or kids gathered with them, and together, this is where we transform ourselves into being more like Jesus? Um, really quick, before I go on, the main influence for the Hindu faith was actually grandparents. Loved that. Now, part of that was because they had emigrated from whichever country that they had come from. So being immigrants here in the United States, parents had to work. Grandparents had come with them. Grandparents stayed home and took care of the kids. So faith was, tra- was transferred down from the grandparents. And again, for those of us who have access to it, how could our grandparents, how could our parents help influence our faith? Albeit imperfectly, because we are sinners, what would that look like? And then moving on to the Buddhist um, parents, their main priority to teach to their kids about their faith was just to live a good life. And the Buddhist parents were very interesting because their culture and their religion is just completely tied. There was absolutely nothing that you could pull apart. Their culture was their religion in so many different ways. They attended temple each Sunday, um, but this is what I loved about what they do. They would have like a phone tree, and find friends to be like, hey, our kids are gonna be bored. Will you come to temple with us? And they would gather together to, do the, to sit in temple together so that their kids would have friends that they were sitting in and so that they wouldn't be as bored. Um, part of the problem of what they would transmission, of what the transmission of their faith was that everything was based on karma. And so what they were passing down to their kids was that like basically karma could change too. There was really no like absolute truth. And so it was part of their breakdown was that this concept of only passing down karma, you get what you get, you give what you give, right? You'll get what you give. That, would, that began to break down as kids become teenagers. And all of a sudden I realized that bad things were happening to them and that it wasn't their fault. <laughs> Wait, what did I do? Karma, this shouldn't, I don't understand. But I loved, and I thought, you know, this is actually something that, for the most part, we do really well as a church. How many of us go to church with our community? We go to church with our friends. How many of our kids feel like they belong in their ministries? And that's one of the things that to is also finding, is that for a child to be discipled well, they must know that they belong in their community of believers, and that looks like being known by name. That looks like having a loving, caring adult investing into them outside of their parents. It can be their parents, but it's also got to be somebody else. And 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 that that knee to me eye-to-eye, like, I know you, and I'm so glad that you're here today. So that belonging thing, and that's something that we as a church both do and can be better at for sure. So Latino Catholic parents are going to be the most similar to us because there are so many God-fearing Christians in the Catholic Church, as we know. And so Latino-specific Catholic parents have their, their, they were immigrants here too. And so they really, but they were, their focus is really on like, we really want to give our kids a moral education because we want to keep them off the streets. So we want to teach them what is right and what is wrong. That's great. Like, you know, God gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us the things to help know what is right and wrong. They had great emphasis on what prayer and modeling their faith would look like by just simply reading the Bible. But where they really struggled is that they they didn't understand how to instruct and spiritually form their children. So they would say, we just know we're supposed to read the Bible. There was not necessarily this long kind of scope and sequence kind of an idea. And I think this is actually something um, the mainline church, our non-denominational churches, we all can struggle with too, is that... It's hard for us to look past just this Sunday or this opportunity in the car and and string all of these moments together to see that our children are being formed spiritually by the interactions that they have. Um, And so because these parents were also working all the time, they found that passing their faith on was really difficult because they weren't able to be with them all the time to actually pass their faith down. All of them identified, all of the religious parents identified that we talked about today, they felt that their house of worship was missing child-specific spiritual formation. And man, when I read that, I was like, hey, here we are. Evangelical church, believers of God, disciples of Jesus, we've nailed this one. We have, for the most part, child-specific spiritual formation. And honestly, I let it sit at that. Like, what a strength that we've come to this point in the church where we have said that the discipleship of children are so important. I mean, we're sitting in one here today at Brentwood Baptist Church. We have entire wings of our churches dedicated to serving them. Like, that is a huge, huge advancement that is helping the children in our churches. Um, And the other piece that I thought was really interesting was that all of these religious um, families... None of them were living in a culture that predominantly shared their faith. And that took me back a second because I'm living in a space where, like, not only was I raised in what felt like the culture was aligned a little bit more with Christianity, but I was also raised in the South, which tends to even have more of an alignment with at least the morals of Christianity— And so sometimes when I look out into the future, I wonder how are we going to raise our kids in a world that is so culturally opposite, that it just is blatant in everything that we do, that we can't even watch commercials anymore because it's teaching them something that I believe is unbiblical, right? And this was such an encouragement to me. None of these families are passing down their faith in a culture that is predominantly their religion. And yet, even though their response is, we hope it'll just get passed on, they're still trying. They're still doing something. So have hope. We are not alone. We have, not only do we have examples that have gone before us, but, but again, we have Jesus to show us the way. And, um, have any of you ever read the book, um, Reappearing Church by Mark Sayers? Okay, great book. Another great one you can read. Okay, write that down. Mark Sayers, is essentially, uh, he is a pastor out in um, Australia, and he writes this book basically talking about, there, we're, we're happening upon a, essentially a revival, that's going to happen in our churches. And it's going to happen because we live in a post-Christian culture. And it takes a specific amount of things to get there. Um, and But basically, to my point, where he comes is he says, but there must come a remnant first that identifies that what's out there isn't enough. What we've been offering also isn't working. And we're willing to do what it takes through the power of the Spirit to pass our faith on to the next generation. And so um, there's a couple of things that we'll go down through this list um, and just kind of highlight a couple of them. But one of the things that we, one of the ways that we have to pass down our faith is recognizing that children are active participants in their faith. The moment we start to think that a child is only so much of the ability to understand our faith, we are losing the power of Jesus in that child. And so in your homes and your churches, each child should be looked at as a disciple. And our our churches must build some systems where we're no longer uh, wanting to just take care of the kids so that parents will come to church. I mean, because that's been a really common thing over the last two decades. Like how many of us have said that we've sat in our churches and said, well, how do we get more, how do we get more families in? Okay, let's do a really cute nursery, let's do this little curriculum for kids, and then we can attract the parents in because they they know that their kids are in a safe and dry place. Their kids will be taken care of. Are all those things good? Yes, we must provide those. But if that's the purpose in which we are providing children's ministry, then we are simply babysitters. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to tell you that we are not babysitters. Children's ministry is spiritual formation for the tiniest of disciples. The second is that as families, we have to prioritize the gospel in our everyday life. And that looks like in road rage, being irritated because somebody cuts us off. That looks like in politics, when, we, our, when our local government puts out a mandate that we don't agree with. That looks like communicating in a way in which we prioritize the gospel and the power of Jesus more than we prioritize what we care about what's going around us. The culture at the time of Jesus coming here to earth was so divisive. Jesus didn't come in during a time where the Jews and the Romans were just perfectly getting along. And they were just having a great time living in harmony and unity. And yet Jesus was able to lead disciples and reaching the uttermost parts of the earth and really letting the politics fall to the side. How do we do that in our homes by prioritizing the gospel in our everyday life? Um, the third is that the spiritual formation of our children has to be a shared collective engagement between both the church and the guardians at home. All right. I'm going to say something really hard here. And it's been something that we've been dealing with where it's the argument of, is the church the primary spiritual form, like formation for the the child? Or is it the home? The home says it's the church. The church says it's the home. And we kind of keep making this awkward place where we want the other to own it. And here's the truth. It's actually both. Because if we look back in Deuteronomy, where God's talking about, He's He's saying, lay it upon your children when they're sleeping and when they're walking by the way. This wasn't because they lived in the society we live in today. They lived in a tribal community where they were all doing that together. All of God's people were discipling the children in that Israelite community, the aunties that didn't have children, the grandmas and grandpas that that had children and then had grandchildren and then had neighbors that had grandchildren. It was everybody all together doing that. And so if if we don't begin to create some unity and, and really some synergy in that space, we will not disciple the children in our lives the way we need to and hand down our faith because they will continue to live in the stalemate that we're in. And in addition to that, one of the things that we as church leaders have to come to grips with is that discipleship isn't happening in the home. And we all know that, and it's frustrating. In fact, I was talking to a leader out in Wisconsin just last week where she said, as her church comes back in and they're seeing kids begin to, their numbers come back to normal after the pandemic, they're actually finding that the gap of biblical literacy is vast. What they left with is not what they're coming back with. And so when we as church leaders sit in that space, instead of, you know, frustratingly saying, parents, get your act together. You own the spiritual formation of your kids. Perhaps we should be asking the question of, do these parents know how to disciple their kids? My gut tells me that they probably don't as well as we hope that they do. Get him an action Bible. Okay, yeah. That's great. I hear that. That's great. You know, my son has an Adventures in Odyssey Bible. He loves that. We've had to kind of walk through how... Wooten's voice its not God's voice, so that's been a whole thing, but he loves that. It gets him engaged in the scriptures in a way that he hasn't been before, but yes, but, but to the point of like, again, parents are looking at this and saying, not only am I overwhelmed at how to disciple my children, I don't know how to do it, and culture doesn't give me an avenue in which to do that, and so I'm going to depend on the church because I don't know what else to do, and so as you engage with your churches, remember that empathy first, And perhaps instead of of casting that frustration towards them, we create a model in the church in which we say, what does it look like for 2021 to mimic the Israelite community in what today's culture provides us? How do we do that, right? How do we help that? How do we stand in the gaps? And then offer to the the parents, hey, somebody is going to disciple your kids. May as well be you. Come on. Come join us. Okay, so you'll continue, to go down the, um, you'll continue to go down the list. Helping parents know that their influence is above and beyond the most crucial. Because I think sometimes parents give up a little bit in the sense of like, they listen to their coach more, they care about their friends more, all they want to do is be on their phone. And I think that while yes, those are the external symptoms that they see, kids value their parents' influence far more than they give them credit for. Um, next is that, well, let's go back to that modeling piece. Modeling is essential. It's not just talking. And, and guys, we all know that. But how many of us would actually admit that the modeling of our faith is done even at a place that you feel comfortable that the Lord covers the gaps in a really beautiful way? We all have areas of growth and the way that we can model the faith to those that are around us. And so what does that look like for each of us to ask, Lord, how can I better model my faith for the kids, not only that are directly under my influence, but better in my church community as well? Okay, and the next one. We have to, in order to pass down faith to our kids, we have to thoughtfully choose life patterns that reflect our values and that reflect our faith. I like to say that when we say yes to something, we forget that by saying yes, we're saying no to something else. And I think as parents and as um, guardians and as grandparents, that's something that we have to become more aware of. Is the patterns of my life exhibiting the values that I hold? Specifically, the values of my faith. And if not, What do I need to do to change that? Because it might be all the sports we're saying yes to, which sports are great. They teach so many good things. But are they saying no to discipleship opportunities elsewhere? Is the busyness of our life and the things we say yes to, even if it's the trunk or tree to church, is that saying no to something else? Sorry, you're right, it's too soon. Your trunk treats were great, my kids were at them, we loved it, it was a great family event. But seriously, the church can provide events that sometimes we need to say, I love this, but actually no, we're not gonna do that. That's okay. It doesn't mean the church should not offer it. It just means that if that is going against the value that our family has set for how we live and work and breathe and exhibit our faith, we have to be able to say no to that. In fact, a really big buzzword right now is Sabbath, right? Families are beginning to establish perhaps what that looks like in their homes, and that should then be a value that influences the pattern of their life. So if a church event falls on a time where you've chosen as a family to rest, that should be an automatic no, because that event falls in conflict with the values you've set for the spiritual formation of your kids let's go into Advent, right? We're about to come into the season of celebrating Christmas. I know we're a couple of weeks ahead of time, but you know that's where we're headed, right? if we've If we've chosen to look to the coming of Christ with our kids each week, and yet we let the busyness of life creep into the time slot that we've had, then we are through our actions showing to our children that it's more important for us to get in the other things we're making time for than the spiritual formation that we were attempting to do that now gets pushed to the bottom of the line and then we get like two minutes before bed, right? So that's what it's like. We have to build lives that are reflecting those patterns in our life. The next one is that we have to listen and engage with the very hard and murky questions that our kids are grappling with. And I use that word murky intentionally because how many of you have been sitting in the classroom with kids or you've been sitting with your own kids and all of a sudden a question comes up and it's like, oh dear, not only is this so convoluted and complex, like it's so multidimensional, I don't even know where to start, right? We don't know how to talk about that. And yet that's, Sorry, moms need to be able to talk about those hard things without going, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Don't react. Right. Listen. I had this moment with my son just this week where we were talking about something very serious. And to protect his privacy, I won't say anything, but I remember sitting there and in my head thinking like, don't react. This is a good conversation. Do not bring any sort of anything to influence him. Just listen. And it was probably... I've gone through a lot and it was probably the hardest thing I've done recently of just listening to him process. So yes, but, if, but, but how often have we kind of given the Christian quip of like, well, all things work together. So the bad things that happen in life, God is good. He'll be there. Okay, I'm here to tell you, yes, God is good all the time but that's not because my bad circumstances turn to good. It's because of his goodness in the midst of the dark circumstances. It's experiencing both of them tangentially at the same time, right? And so if we don't begin to engage these hard questions, they're taking these questions elsewhere or they're allowing culture to give them the answer that they need for those questions. And that is then where we begin to see this disconnection happen with kids and the passing down of their faith. Um, The next one, and this is something that I'm preaching to myself here, is that we have to prioritize our own discipleship. Man, it's easy to talk, to tell kids you must love Jesus, to tell kids it's important for you to worship him and to pattern your life after him. And then it stopped there. And we've all heard it. But your, the, the ability for you to disciple your children is dependent upon your own discipleship. If you think you can do that outside of actively engaging in a relationship with God, you will find that it is a simply one-dimensional process of information, that it can only go as far as yourself Because if you're not being transformed by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit can't use your discipleship and your engagement to transform the kids in your life. So prioritizing yourself, which might mean that you say no to something so that you can say yes to something with Jesus. And then lastly, being willing to explain your faith to any and all that will listen. And what I mean by that is, We've, we've seen, and I'm not going to go into this at in depth, but we've seen evangelism change over the last five decades in so many different ways. I mean, I remember as a kid, my community would have every Thursday night, we'd go door to door, knocking and handing out tracts. right? This was like the early 90s for me. Um, and that's not something we really do anymore. <laughs> that's not a type of evangelism. And in fact, tomorrow, if you want to come over um, to another breakout, you'll hear a little conversation around digital evangelism. And that's what we've looked. You know, that's what we're looking at today. But evangelism has changed to where there's so much more conversational about what it looks like to have talks about Jesus with just people you brush shoulders with, even if it's for 30 seconds. And so that's another way that we can pass our faith down is not only being willing to do that with strangers, but being willing to take those 30 seconds with our kids and saying, this is a faith moment. This is, this is what I believe. Actually, this is a moment that I'm really struggling with. And I'm gonna go process this with somebody else. You don't need to process this with me because you're eight or you're 12 But you should know that I'm struggling with this, and this is really hard. That's okay, because God takes those, and He understands, and He holds them, and He walks us through them.
0: Well, that was great stuff from Melanie Hester from Owana. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And if you would like to dive deeper in your journey of becoming a disciple maker, I want to point you in the direction of the discipleship.org collective. We host shows there and webinars and seminars and all kinds of stuff. You can sign up for a free account today, discipleship.org slash collective. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day.